You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Good morning. I want to welcome you to our gathering today. If you've got your Bibles, you can open them up to Ephesians chapter 5. As you've heard a, a few times now, we have um, probably, I guess, seven couples that are coming back today uh, from Snowbird that have been on our marriage retreat, and so we're excited to get them back. Um, several other families that are out today, too, and so I, I had several people even ask me, like, do you think anybody's going to be at church on Sunday? And I was like, yeah, we'll have some people there, and um, you guys are going to get uh, some insider information today by choosing to come today, so I'm going to kind of update you on uh, finishing up Ephesians here in the next couple of weeks and then where we're going next. Um, Adam said, or as Adam was praying, he was praying that or acknowledging that God knows exactly what we need. Um, hopefully that's true today because um, today's going to be a little bit longer as far as the amount of verses that we're covering. Um, in looking at how we were going to kind of finish out the book of Ephesians, um, we're going we're gonna to finish in three weeks, and we're still in chapter 5, so we've got some big chunks that I want to cover. And the reason that I want to do that is because I believe uh, that these sections really need to be understood together. Um, and so I didn't want to piece them out. I wanted us to understand the heart and the mindset behind what Paul's saying um, over the next couple of weeks. And so we're going to finish in, in about three weeks with the book of Ephesians. Um, and then I'm really excited about where we're going next in light of what we were talking last week about with uh, our filling of the Holy Spirit and speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're going to uh, start a uh, mini-series through the book of Psalms, uh, probably spend about 15 weeks there. So we'll cover a portion of the book of Psalms, and then we'll step away from Psalms, and then we'll come back to Psalms eventually and do probably another 15. And so probably 10 times we'll go back to the book of Psalms and eventually cover the entire book. So we won't stay there for the entirety uh, of the Psalms, but we'll kind of piece it out over the coming years. And so I'm excited about doing that. Uh, so that'll be coming here pretty soon um, as well. But today, uh, we're going to wrap up chapter 5 and look into chapter 6 as well. This concept of uh, submission and service within the relationships that we have in our life. And so we're going to see how these all kind of fit together, whether it's husbands and wives, children and parents, bond servants and masters. I want us to see kind of the common theme and common threads that run through these sections of Scripture. And so you'll remember last week we were talking about what it means to be spirit-filled, not to be drunk with wine, but instead to be filled with the Spirit, how that leads to a mindset where we are giving thanks for all things, uh, we are encouraging one another with our worship, uh, that, that worship is overflowing in the ways that we even sing as we come together corporately on a Sunday, that we're bursting forth with song because of what God is doing in our life. And so uh, that kind of transitions into um, where we didn't finish last week in verse 21. And so I'll start with verse 21, and then we're going to get into verses 22 and following. It says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Our summary sentence for today is we must filter the relationships that impact our family most through our relationship with Christ. Because the fulfillment of our roles in those relationships has a direct impact on others' understanding of the gospel. We must filter the relationships that impact our family most through our relationship with Christ. Because the fulfillment of our roles in those relationships has a direct impact on others' understanding of the gospel. For our kids, our relationship to Christ should impact how we interact with others. Now, I get the fact that as we look at these three sections, not every single person will fit into all three of these sections, but everybody will find relevancy and application at some point as we're talking through these themes, okay? So as we talk about husbands and wives, you may not be a husband or a wife today, uh, but there's common themes found here that translate over into what it looks like to be a, a parent or a child. There's also crossover and carryover into what it looks like to be a uh, Uh, a master or a leader uh, or an employee or a a bond servant that's talked about here. And so we're going to see some of these common themes and threads and how they apply to us. I do want to take the time to read the parallel passage over in Colossians 3, just so we can see the the similarities and parallels of Paul saying some of the same things uh, in the book of Colossians. It says in verse 12 of chapter 3, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also are 
have a master in heaven. I don't think it's an accident that we come to this section of Ephesians at the same time that we're studying a similar passage in 1 Peter chapter 3 in our D groups, right? Uh, Those that met this past week, our males, our men, you saw the the discussion about husbands and wives and marriage. Our ladies will be doing that together uh, this coming week. Um, for the marriage retreat at Snowbird to fall on the exact same weekend as when we come to this passage in Ephesians. I don't think that's an accident. I think God is kind of bringing all that together, the things that we're studying and learning, uh, so we can see the commonality of what's being said in Scripture about some of these topics. Paul is instructing us about this theme of submission and service to one another. It's not only timely for our church because of what we're studying in other passages and, and the conferences that we're experiencing, but it's also a timely message for us today since we are living in a day and age where the marriage concept is being attacked, both in gender and marriage format, and redefined for us, right? Children, rather than parents, are driving their own development, and the work ethic of people is decreasing at alarming rates. These are important concepts for us based on what we're experiencing in today's day and age. Gender and marriage is being redefined for us. Children are becoming more and more uh, elevated in the family structure to where they are driving sometimes the family and the decision-making. Uh, I've told you before, in meeting with families at Trinity, uh, parents confess to me uh, unknowingly uh, the role and the impact their child plays in their own decision-making, that they are letting the children make so many of the decisions for their families. And then we, we see and experience as a result of what we've uh, endured through COVID, just the work ethic of people. Places that are just closed simply because they can't find people to work, right? These are, these are uh, passages that are so timely for us today based on what we're experiencing out there in our culture and our world. This message flows from Paul's idea that Christians have a responsibility to submit to one another. This comes from verse 21. He makes this comment about submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's a, it's a big picture concept that we're to submit to each other And then he begins to break that down practically. How do we do that? How does that look in certain specific relationships? Some commentators kind of push back against this idea that we have a responsibility to submit to all people. Um, But I kind of disagree with the fact that, that 21 would not be applying to all of us submitting to each other because I think it falls in line with what we see Uh, from other sections of scripture. The idea that we're called to put our needs over others. Uh, This idea that we're to to serve one another and prefer one another. That's found throughout all scripture. Now we're going to see in this idea of submission, there's there's certainly someone who uh, takes on the responsibility of leading in certain relationships, but there's certainly this two-sided coin of submission and service that both are responsible for. Like, I don't see it mutually exclusive that there's one party that's supposed to submit to the other party. Because what we see in this passage is a mutual submission to each other, a mutual care, um, a mutual uh, sacrificing of needs for the sake of other people's needs. Uh, So there's this two-sided coin of submission and service, and it's almost indistinguishable beyond the idea that one bears responsibility for ensuring that these mutual submissions and services are occurring. You get that? Like, what we're going to see is that the wife submits to the husband, but the husband is sacrificially loving his wife to where you could almost call that submission as well, right? The, the, the child is to, to, to submit and obey the parent, but look at how the parent is supposed to parent, 
right? Like keeping emotions under check, being intentional with the guidance and instruction. Like there's self-sacrifice on the parent's part to bring the child up in the instruction for the Lord. Even as the master and the bondservant are talked about, you've got the boss and the employee, but the boss has to submit himself to the employee to serve and to care for that employee like Christ would. And so there's this mutual submission that I think we see in all three of these sections. This submission and service and love, you're giving yourself up for somebody else. You're putting the will of the other ahead of your own. You're putting the needs of others above your own. The wives, the children, and the employees are specifically told to submit, but the husband, the parent, the employers are called to serve. I put in my notes, it's important that while roles are defined in their differences, the value of each is magnified. Okay, so it's not that one individual in these relationships is more important than the other. There's roles and they're defined here, but the value of each is magnified. One person is leading and one person is following similar to a dance, but together they are needed for the relationship described to flourish. Right. You can't have a great marriage without both spouses doing their part. You can't have a great family without parents and children doing their part. You can't have a great work environment without bosses and workers doing their part. It's important that we see that. It's not one's more important than the other. Right? There's this mutual submission and service that's taking place. In each relationship, each person is responsible before God for their activity. Someone is required to exercise authority to lead, and the other is required to submit gladly to that leadership. Neither is more or less important than the other. It's real similar to how we see the Trinity working, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, equal, and yet submitted to each other, right? God the Father, Christ is submitted to him, right? Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Christ praying and saying, I'm submitted to your will, right? I will carry through with your will, not because Christ is inferior to the Father, because he willfully submits himself to the Father, the initiator and the responder in these sections. Both are necessary for this beautiful dance to happen. And when it's working properly, it is for our good. Now the quantifier here, as we talk about submission and service, the quantifier here is that we don't submit when it leads us into sin. Whether that's the wife to the husband, whether that's the the child to the parent or the employee to the boss, we don't submit to leadership that leads us into sin. We have examples of this in scripture, right? Uh, we, we don't fall into immorality. We don't, we, don't, we, don't, we don't allow someone to lead us into immorality or into idolatry. It's where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have stood up and said, hey, I, I won't do this. We, we won't go this direction. Uh, we won't live this way. Uh, we won't uh, submit if it involves suppressing the gospel, right? We don't submit to leadership that would have us suppress the gospel. This is where the disciples would say, hey, we will follow Rome, but if Rome... Uh, impedes upon our ability to progress the gospel, that's where we have to deviate from that obedience and that submission. I think it's also important for us to note that there are abusers in all of these cases. There are husbands that will abuse their headship. There are parents that will abuse their authority towards their children. There are bosses that will abuse their authority as well. But even though there are abuses in all of these cases, it doesn't negate the appropriateness Right? So we don't take the abuse and say, hey, that means there's a flaw in the system. Therefore, we don't need to carry these things out because people abuse this power. No, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a thing where we say, hey, because there's abuse, we throw it out. No, this is God's ordained design for how these things should function. These are not conditional either on the other person doing their part. Meaning, um, 
as a husband, I don't lead well and serve well as long as my wife is responding to that. My wife's not called to follow as long as I'm doing a great job at leading, right? As, as children, we don't obey our parents when we agree with our parents or if our parents are doing everything right because they don't do everything right, right? It's not conditional, uh, we find ways to live this way, even in the flawed ways that our counterpart will act. He talks about three specific things that are, or three specific relationships that are so important to our family, right? That's why I, I, I specified here that the relationships that impact our family most, right? The, the husband and the wife, the parent, the child, the, the employee and the boss. These are, these are relationships that directly impact our well-being of our family. And if we filter these relationships through our relationship with Christ, It'll have deep impact on our experience within those relationships, but it will also picture the gospel wonderfully to outsiders looking in. So let's kind of see how this, this works and moves as we work through the text. Um, number one, we want to engage with our spouse to reflect the gospel. We want to engage with our spouse to reflect the gospel. Now, as a reminder, this section can only be applied to a true marriage as created and ordained by God, Right? Marriage is being redefined, okay? And, and I think John Stott has a great uh, definition for us here about what marriage is according to how God created it in Genesis. Marriage is an exclusive heterosexual covenant between one man and one woman, ordained and sealed by God, preceded by the leaving of parents, consummated in sexual union, issuing in a permanently mutually supportive partnership, and often crowned with the gift of children. This is the type of marriage that's being talked about here. This is the God-ordained way of doing things. No matter how our culture continues to shift it, right, we will stand strong in this definition of marriage. And it's important that our kids understand this because they are growing up in a day and age where uh, they will not view it as a shifting. They will view it as this is what it's always been for me. There's always been two definitions of marriage, right? The cultural one and the one I learned at church. And it's important we, uh, we help them understand why the one at church is right, right? And it's not because we were raised this way. It's because it's how it was created from the very beginning, right? It's why the book of Genesis is so important because it gives us the origins that shape our understanding of life today, okay? Engage with your spouse to reflect the gospel. Uh, we need to begin with the goal in mind here of, of why uh, Paul even talks about wives and husbands in the ways that he does because he talks or he reveals to us the, the purpose of it at the very end of chapter 5 and verse 32, this mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, he describes the husband's role and the wife's role in relationship to Christ and the church. And then he tells us here at the very end, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm helping you to see that marriage is what pictures the gospel for us. Like, this why God gave us marriage, not the other way around. God wasn't trying to think of how can I help you understand Christ and the church well, marriage is a pretty good picture. Like, let, let's use something that's already in existence. No, God said, I'm going to picture Christ in the gospel in the church. I'm going to institute marriage so that I have the illustration to use. As pastors, we typically have to rely upon things that are already in existence to pull in as an analogy. So I pull in football analogies all the time. I didn't create football to help you better understand scripture. God creates marriage so that we can better understand his love for us as his children. That's, that's beautiful. I, I, that's why we can't redefine it because he's the one that created it and he created it for a specific purpose for us to see the love that Christ has for the church. Good marriages picture 
the gospel because marriage is meant to be a shadow of the ultimate marriage of Christ and his bride. Now, this idea of headship and the husband and the wife role, it's rooted in, in other parts of scripture too. You can see this in Matthew 19, verses four through six, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, three through 12, 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. We won't take the time to read these. Um, it's important to remember that sin seeks to undo these mandates, right? Sin seeks, seeks to pervert this, abuse this, to make people turn away from it, right? That whole idea that, hey, because people abuse this, we should therefore consider it a flawed system. That's what the enemy would have us to believe. The enemy would have us to, uh, to believe that because people distort these concepts, that we should just throw these concepts out, and that's not the case, okay? Um, let's see exactly what Paul's talking about and what's being said here. Number one, wives are called to submit to husbands as the church submits to Christ, Wives are called to submit to husbands as the church submits to Christ. Now, I know we're going to kind of go through quickly the slides because I want to get to everything. We've got our slides posted on our Google Drive if you ever need to go back and look. But don't ever hesitate to reach out to me if you say, hey, I was writing something down and I didn't get it. Because I've got it right here for you. I can give it to you. Okay. Uh, Wives are called to submit to husbands as the church submits to Christ. The what and the why is what I want us to dial in here now. The what. She is called to submit to her husband's leadership his guidance and direction. And this is something that should be modeled and learned from other women in the church. Like, like there's, a, there's a need for discipleship and how to do this because our fleshly tendencies will push back against it. Uh, we, we see this in the garden where, where Adam is going to be uh, trending towards passivity in his life and passivity as the husband and the leader of the family. And the wife is going to potentially look to a, a usurp his authority. And so Titus 2, 4 through 5, talks about how there's a need for this type of teaching and training and understanding. Uh, verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Right? Gospel implications, gospel purposes, that we live in such a way to magnify the gospel, not to detract from it. Why? Because... The wife is the picture of the church and its relationship to, the, to Christ, okay? So that's the what, the why. She is to model the role of the church in following Christ as the head of his body. We're to picture the church to the world through the ways that, that women live out marriage in gospel relationships. Now, in each one of these sections, I want to give you the what, the why, and then what's being said and what's not being said, okay? Because the enemy wants to fill this with things that aren't being said to detract us from what is being said right? Uh, what's being said and what's not being said. First off, I think it's important for us to see that the husband is given the head or given the spot as the head of the family as a servant leader. It's not something that's to be discussed and agreed upon as though they're interchangeable, right? It's not that he says, one of you has to be the head, y'all decide who that is, and then go from there. No, he, he, he establishes the roles here. The husband is the head of the family, He's to be the servant leader. But she, the wife, is not expected to submit to every man, but is to called to submit to her man here, right? This isn't a teaching on gender in general to where we're supposed to think that somehow women are to be suppressed under every male figure. No, this is a call for her to yield herself willingly to her husband. She's not to be viewed as unequal. Uh, she's not um, to be viewed as someone who's to give in to slavish obedience either. She's called to experience this type of submissive relationship to a husband who is willing to die for her good. 
right? The way that God has ordained this is that this is an absolutely wonderful thing for a woman to be free to follow the leadership of one who is committed to die for her. And we'll talk more about what that means when we get to the husband. She is called to do so willingly and is not to be forced into submission by her husband. I think that's key too, right? The husband is not tasked here to bring his wife under submission. Like that, that's, not, that's not communicated here. This is to be a willful submission by the wife to her husband. I think it's important to note here too that while the roles of head and submission are distinguished here, the labor of marriage is not being clearly divided, meaning that what the man does and what the woman does specifically, it's not laid out for us here. I was listening to an old sermon by Rob from Snowbird, and he made the point, and I, and I agree with it, this doesn't necessarily mean that a traditional marriage from the 50s is the ideal marriage for us today, right? Like, like uh, Rob was making the point, he's like, hey, we're not trying to get back to leave it to Beaver and say that that's how it's supposed to be all the time, right? Now, we can, we can see principles there that maybe were helpful, right? But what's key here is that the husband has the responsibility for caring for that family and guiding and directing that family. How that looks practically, there, I think there's a lot of flexibility there. Right? There's flexibility as the husband and the wife work together because here's the other piece. Um, her submission is not mindless, nor does it minimize her abilities. I think in a healthy Christian marriage, the woman's gifts and wisdom should be maximized to the fullest. Here's where the enemy steps in and says uh, to our women, you should hate this because this quiets you and it makes you submissive and mindless and, and you don't get to exercise anything in the marriage. And that's not what's being taught here. Man, the exact opposite is being taught. Because as we get into the husband perspective, he is supposed to cultivate that woman and help her flourish with the ways that God has created and designed her. Like that's his task. As, as, as he leads the family, he is supposed to make his wife phenomenal. He is supposed to raise her up and, and, and develop her and help her and guide her to where she is maximized to the fullest. Her loving submission leads the husband into deeper faith as well. We're seeing this in 1 Peter 3 where if you have an unbelieving husband, that the wife submits to him and potentially brings him to faith through that. All gospel implications, all gospel purposes here. The wife is called to submit to the husband as the church submits to Christ. The husband is called to love their wife as Christ loves the church. Note that he's not called to lead or to rule his wife. He is called to love her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The what and the why. He's called to love his wife as Christ loves the church. He is called to give himself up for her good. He's to picture Christ to the world through his love, his sacrifice, his care, his provision. As he focuses on her growth, her development with a sacrificial, sanctifying, and self-love towards her. What's being said and what's not being said. What Paul's telling us here is that he is to exemplify the lifestyle of Jesus in ways that he treats his bride. He is to lead with a love that is willing to die. It's not a license for domination or lordship. One commentator said, it's not like we're allowing the husband to sit on the couch and become Jabba the Hutt where he dictates what his wife does all the time. That's not the picture here, right? He doesn't just get to sit around and say, you do this and kids, y'all do this too. That is not the, now the enemy is what, what he, that's what the enemy wants us to believe is that, that the Bible is archaic and that it presents this type of perspective about marriage where the husband is Jabba the Hutt sitting in his palace telling everybody what to do. 
what, what, what's really contained here is that the husband is Christ. And husband is, is to live out a self-dying type of perspective in the ways that he cares for his family. The enemy says, why would you ask the woman to submit? And, and just leaves out everything about the husband. I'm sitting here reading and thinking, man, the husband has the unbelievable task of dying to himself to serve his family. What an unbelievable job, but an unbelievable responsibility that's being given to us as well. He is to lead with a love that's willing to die. He is to, uh, not to lead absent from the counsel and giftings of his wife. We already said this, that, that he's, to, he's to lean upon those things and to maximize those things. It's a partnership. It's a dance where, yes, he's taking the lead, but he can't do it without the wife coming alongside and, and dancing with him in that. He's to demonstrate humility as he sacrifices himself for her needs. It's a call to serve by dying. It leaves no room for passivity. He's to be intentional in the ways that he cares. He is to love her in a way to help her grow in Christ-likeness as he cares for her, as he shepherds her well. He's to love her with the same care and love he would give to himself. Let's go back to the text. I've been just kind of trying to, trying to stay on task by just giving you these bullet points and not expounding upon them. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands, right? So the message there is, wives, follow your husbands as the church should follow Christ. But then this this admonition to the husbands, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, right? Don't rule them or lead them, but love them. Give yourself for her as Christ gave himself for the church, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish, right? Jesus has this perspective where he wants to take us as sinful people and he wants to move us towards Christ-likeness, right? He wants to move us towards being conformed to his image. The husband plays this role in leading his family, leading his wife to where he wants to see her become like Christ. He wants to help move her and push her towards Christ. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it, cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Right? So he's going to show great care by being a place where the wife can leave the parent, he can leave the parent, and together they're going to come and dance together for the glory of God. And it's a picture. The mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. A couple of questions that I put in here for us as husbands. Is your wife more like Christ as a result of marrying you? Is your wife more like Christ as a result of marrying you? Second question for us. I would die myself for my wife if I faced an enemy in a dark alley. But am I willing to die to myself to protect her from myself. Let me say that again. I would die myself for my wife if I faced an enemy in a dark alley. But am I willing to die to myself to protect her from myself? Right? We read this and it says that the husband to love his wife, give himself up for her, right? Be willing to die for her. And most of us would say, man, I love my wife, right? If we're somewhere where, where we were to be presented with an enemy that wants to take the, the life of my wife, if somebody were to break into my house, I mean, I'm willing to stand in the gap for her. 
right? I'm willing, I'm willing to die in place of her that so she can live. But I think there's this also this passage of giving myself up for her, not so that I'll just simply die if an enemy comes into the house, but I'm also willing to give myself up for her good, that I'm willing to die to myself and my desires and what I want for the sake of her, because that's what Christ did, right? Christ gave himself up for us so that we could be saved, so that we could be sanctified, right? So the idea here would be that I'm willing to let my selfishness die as I seek to lead my family. Wives called to submit, husbands called to love for the sake of the gospel. And I told you a couple of weeks ago that whenever I talk about parenting, I'm never trying to single out somebody as though they're the one doing the wrong thing because I think our church is full of great parents who are parenting well. I would say the same thing here about marriage, right? As I read this and study this, I am grateful and thankful that our church is full of what I believe to be examples of what's being talked about here, right? I don't read this and think, I'm going to have to have some side conversations with a couple of couples in our church because they're not doing this right, right? Like, I think our church is a model place where you can come and see. I think our kids are growing up in an unbelievable environment where they see husbands loving and leading like Christ and our wives submitting to their husbands like, like the church would submit to Christ. Now, are we perfect in that? No, absolutely not. Do we need tweaks and changes and improvements and do we need growth and development? Absolutely. But structurally, I believe we are blessed with families who understand this and are models and example of this. So I'm so thankful for that. So don't, don't read this and think that I'm trying to underlyingly talk to somebody here from the stage that says, hey, you need to change how your family is being run. No, I don't, I don't believe that. I believe we are blessed with families who model this well. But as you see your role Man, be challenged and convicted where, where you need to yield to your role more, where you need to see how you playing out your role magnifies the gospel. It makes Christ great in the eyes of others who are looking in on our marriages. Let's go to the next section, chapter 6, verse 1. Number 2 in our notes, engage with your family for spiritual growth. Engage with your family for spiritual growth. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. I think there's great value that's being communicated here about children. One, because they are seen as being included even in this setting where they would have been reading this letter out loud in the church, right? The assumption here is that our kids are here to hear this instruction. They're not somewhere else. They are here, present, and willing and able to listen to this instruction. They're also being included in the instruction, which means there's value upon children in the church and how they respond as well. So kids that are here that are listening, I know I've already talked for a long time, but this is your section. This is partly for you now as you learn how to, to, to yield to your mom, to your dad, and to obedience to them. Psalm 127 and Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7 are great passages to look at as a family about obedience to the parent. Number one, children are called to obey their parents because it is right and best. It's right and best. Parents, if you need some more ammunition to talk to your kids about being obedient to you, Exodus 20, verse 12, Matthew 15, verse 4, Matthew 19, verse 19, Mark 7, verse 10, Mark 10, verse 19, Luke 18, verse 20. What's being talked about here? As children are called to obey their parents because it's right and best, they're called to obey with, with honor and respect. They're called to do this because it's right and it's best. Look at what's, what's being said and what's not being said here. Obedience to parents is right in all societies, right? It, it, it's, it's identified here as, as um, 
what's right for children to do, right? Children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. And all societies say this, at least right now they do, right? That the expectation is that children should obey their parents, um, that it's the right way to live. It's the right thing to do. Um, we're called to write things as Christians. We already saw this in Ephesians 5, 9, right? Part of the ethics of light is that we do the right thing. We do good things. And this is certainly part of that. So children, if you're sitting here, if you're listening, um, your responsibility as a child, one of your main primary tasks and jobs in life right now is to submit to yourself, to your, to your mom and dad, to be obedient, to be obedient and to show them honor and respect because as a Christian, even if you weren't a Christian, that would be an expectation on you in our society. We would expect that because you're a child. Even more so in a Christian family. Children, you honor and glorify God by the way that you obey your parents. We already read Colossians 3.20. But you honor God, you glorify God, because as you obey your parents, it is as though you are obeying God himself. He's given you the parents that he's given you. There's not a kid in here who chose their parents right? You didn't choose your parents. God gave you these parents, and he's called you to be obedient to them, to honor them, and to love them. Now, the kicker here is your obedience is not seen just in your actions, but your attitudes as well, right? That's where the honoring part comes in. We can obey our parents. We can do what they tell us to do, but we can dishonor them in doing it, but our obedience is seen in our actions and our attitudes. We have to work with this with our kids, like Sometimes our kids are faithful to do what we've asked them to do, but it's like the worst experience possible for everybody involved watching that get carried out, right? The attitude coupled with the action, like it almost re- makes you regret asking them to do what you asked them to do. It's like, just stop. Like, I, I, I hate what's happening in front of me right now, right? Um, it's the attitude and the action that leads to the type of obedience that's being talked about here. And we obey our parents because of the promises that are attached to it. This idea of blessing and safekeeping, it's rooted in the Old Testament. The idea here is that a longer, better life is a result of being obedient to your parents. Now, we don't read this as an all-inclusive promise as though this guarantees like there will never be a premature death for a child. That's not what being, what's being promised here. Here's how I would understand this. Um, I put longer, better life as a result of this. It doesn't exempt one from a premature death, and I put that in quotes because I don't believe there is a premature death from God's perspective, right? But from the human perspective, we say things like, that child died too young, right? So in, in, in quotes here, uh, premature death for other reasons, but it eliminates this as being the reason, right? So there may be other reasons that God would take a child home early, but by being obedient to your parents, it's not one of the reasons, right? Um, it protects you from the tragedies that your parents are warning you against. It leads to a longer life because our parents are typically giving us guidance that is meant to protect us. And when we disregard that, it could lead to our death, right? It could lead to our death. And so the promise here is that, that our life is better when we're being submitted to our parents because we're typically listening and yielding to their wisdom. We won't take the time to read it again for sake of time, but Proverbs chapter 4, verse 10, and the verses following that are awesome as far as the, the instruction that's coming from the father or the, or the wife to the child and the reasons for lending itself to obedience to it, the protection that comes from being obedient to your parents. Proverbs 10, 27, Proverbs 30, verse 17. Being disobedient to your parents doesn't sound like maybe a huge thing, like it's just 
part of life. Like those of you that are older, even like you might even say, I'm not always obedient to my parents, but I do a lot better than my, my friends do to their parents. Now, I think it's worth mentioning that in 2 Timothy 3, 2, it's like one of the warning signs that we're in the end is when kids are disobedient to their parents. Like it's a big deal in God's eyes. It's a big deal. Every time we're disobedient to our parents, we are failing to be obedient to God. It's important for us to be submissive in this mindset and this attitude. A conscious decision to respect and obey your parents will shape the course and direction of your life. You do it even if you don't understand why it's right and best. You do it because Jesus told you to do it. But here's where we would say, hey, the children have to be submissive, but man, the big responsibility falls on the parent to be in service to the child as well. Parents are called to intentionally develop their children to follow God. Now, the father is identified here. I think it it goes back to the idea that the father is the one who's primarily responsible for making sure this happens, even though he may not be the one who's always carrying it out, right? There's, There's plenty of passages of Scripture that talk about both parents playing a role in the discipline of their children. Proverbs 1, 8, Proverbs 6, 20 through 22, and 2 Timothy 1, 5, and 2 Timothy 3, 14. But parents are called to intentionally develop their children to follow God. They're called to raise their children in a way that prompts them towards obedience without resentment. That's that idea there where in uh, Colossians it talks about not discouraging them. Here it talks about not provoking them to anger. We're called to raise our children in a way that prompts them towards obedience without resentment. Why? Because we're called to instruct and discipline not just for a healthy home, but for his kingdom. We're called to make disciples of them. Right? It's not just about getting your kids in line so that you can enjoy your evenings better. Right? It's not getting them to clean your room or clean, their li- clean the living room so that people can come over. Right? It's not about having a healthy home only. It's about a healthy kingdom. Because the instruction here is that we don't just grow them up in how our house functions. We grow them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There's a much bigger picture here that's going on. What's being said and not being said. Parents need to expect obedience, and they need to require it when it isn't being given. That discipline and instruction. We instruct them, we expect obedience, and then when they're not obedient, discipline has to come. Why? Because the child endangers himself or herself by disobeying the parent. They need us to discipline as a means of protection. Why? Because the passage says, as they yield themselves to obedience, their life will go better. Right? It will go well with you. You may live long in the land. As parents, the most loving thing that we can do is discipline our children because we are protecting them. We are protecting them long term. And it's hard. It's hard. Uh, last night, Mally was acting in such a way where you know, we had to have a talk. We had to have a talk at the end of the day. Uh, and we talked about what it means to be selfish and to, to, to not yield yourself to others and not think about others' needs. Um, and I was tired, and I didn't want to have that discussion. But I couldn't study this passage, come teach it to you guys, and miss an opportunity last night to carry this out, right? Instruction and discipline is needed. Uh, we're protecting them by drawing their attention to these sin issues in their heart. God is the source for us receiving children, and we're called to lead them to him when they are given to us. We do this through our marriages. As we love each other well and stay together well, we are pointing them to Jesus. What are we to teach them? Well, we've seen already in Ephesians things that we should certainly be modeling for them. The idea of speaking truth lovingly, working honestly, giving generously, encouraging others properly, putting away bitterness and anger repentantly, forgiving one another regularly. These are things that they should see in our marriages. They should be learning these things from us. 
this discipline and instruction in the Lord. We need to pray for them. We need to give them the gospel and take them to church so they can grow up in their knowledge of who he is. But we're also told to keep them from anger, which means we can't just discipline them. We have to do it in a specific way, right? We have to be fair. We have to be loving and consistent towards our children. We have to have healthy expectations for them, keeping in mind that they are kids and don't compare them to other kids. Like there's, there's things that need to be disciplined and then there's things where you just have to say, oh, they're still a kid, right? We're trying to get out the door yesterday to get to Logan's football game. Lauren's done a fantastic job of preparing a meal for us. We're trying to get those, uh, the soup in the bowl. Um, Mally comes into the, living, or into the kitchen to get hers. I mean, Lauren has doctored it up exactly how she wants it. She hands it to Mally. Mally turns around and drops it on the floor, right? And I immediately went, and I was just like frustrated at the fact that, like, he had dropped it. And I had to stop and pause because I was ready to issue discipline. I'm like, I'm not disciplining her. Like, she's a kid. Like, she's, a, she's an active kid who's excited about what's happening right now. And she made a mistake. Right? So I just looked at her. You're doing this. And I said, now I go to your room for a minute. And wash your hands as you go. Like, right? And you're not right. I'm just going to play. There was so much of me that wanted to discipline her. So I don't need to provoke her to anger. Like, she doesn't need to see inconsistencies or things that she can't control or things that she can't do. Right? I think we have to, as parents, recognize the difference between those things that are fair expectations and those things that are part of being a kid. Uh, consistent follow-through, disciplining them consistently and fairly, positive affirmation, giving them approval, expressing love to them. Not disciplining them mistakes, focusing on willful disobedience and defiance, not punishing them, uh, not pushing them towards your goals for them, uh, not overprotecting them. Like these are these are hard things, difficult things, but they're things that deserve our intentional thought processes. How do we raise them towards the discipline and the instruction of the Lord so they don't resent it? So they see it as good and healthy and proper. And then lastly, number three, engage with your job as an act of worship. Engage with your job as an act of worship. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart for Jesus Christ. Not by way of eye service or people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this will be received back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop them threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Think about the worst job of all time that you ever had. You're either going to focus on the tasks that were given to you or the person that you had to work for. Right? This passage transforms the worst job. It transforms it. Because what this is telling us to do and telling us to see is that um, every job that you do is an opportunity to work for Him, an opportunity to demonstrate what He who He is. And even the worst master on this earth that He has to it's not the true person that we're working for. This, this radically transforms our job situations when we understand that. Uh, number one, the employees are called to do their jobs as though they are working for Christ. They're called to do their jobs as though they are working for Christ. They're to work with proper attitudes and a good work ethic. They're to understand that in all of their work, they are working both for an earthly master and a heavenly master. The heavenly master who gives the true reward for his own work. What's being said? What's not being said? You work respectfully with fear and trembling by showing honor to your boss. It has gospel implications. First Timothy chapter 6 warns.
God, we love you, we thank you, we praise you for your word. I know we've gone over it some today. But God, my desire was for us to see how this all fits together. God, I pray that you'd help us to see that we have a responsibility to love and care for others. To sacrifice our self-esteem. Whether it's in our marriage, whether it's in our household, with our family, and our kids, whether it's at the, the workplace. We have Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.